What a treat this has been to be at this conference, and boy, David, thank you just so much for your hospitality and uh, putting this on and making it possible. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, the disciples came to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and they asked him a question which is on the minds of many people today, beginning with verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, a lot of people are asking that question today. How are we to know when Jesus Christ is going to return? When my family and I were missionaries in the Philippine Islands during the 1980s, as I would speak through that archipelago of 7,000 islands, I would often share with the Filipino people a story they all remembered. A lot of people don't realize that on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese were bombing Pearl Harbor, that almost simultaneously they were also bombing Clark Air Force Base just north of Manila in the Philippine Islands. General Douglas MacArthur, who was stationed in Manila, when the bombing began, MacArthur went out to Corregidor, an island there in Manila Harbor, and he got on a ship, and MacArthur sailed down to Australia. He got on the radio, and he radioed back a message to the Filipino people that they all remembered. And General Douglas MacArthur said, I what? I shall return. And boy, you talk to the Filipinos who lived during the Second World War. And they will tell you that they lived for those words. They knew that MacArthur had promised, I shall return. MacArthur fulfilled that promise in 1944 and liberated the Philippine Islands. So also our Lord Jesus Christ has said to us here this evening, He has said, I shall return. And the disciples said, Lord, when is this going to take place? What are going to be the signs of the second coming? And you know, if you read Matthew chapter 24, it's like reading today's newspaper, where he talks about wars and rumors of war, nation against nation, about earthquake and famine in many places. But I want you to notice what Jesus answered number one to his disciples concerning the last days, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Verse 11. And many false prophets will also arise and will mislead many. Verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs, And false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And four times here in his Olivet Discourse, Jesus warns us that the first thing you're going to see happening is the coming of many false Christs and false prophets. And certainly we're seeing that today as never before. You have here some young moon, founder of the Unification Church, held a big rally in 1990 in San Francisco in which he proclaimed that he was the Messiah, that he is the second coming of Jesus Christ, just in case you hadn't heard that yet. And some young moon who lives in New York City owns the Washington Times newspaper, and he believes that he is the second coming of Jesus Christ, and his wife is the Holy Spirit incarnate. We had a few years ago down here in Waco, Texas, you remember the Branch Davidian called in David Koresh. David Koresh, who claimed that he alone was the voice of God on earth. He alone was able to accurately interpret scripture. And we remember what happened in Waco. Just a couple years ago down in San Diego, California, we had Apple White and the Heaven's Gate call. 
This man had claimed to be the voice of God, the prophet of God on earth. He had gathered 39 highly educated computer programmers in Southern California, convinced them that there was a UFO orbiting the earth hidden behind the Hale-Bopp comet and that they were to leave their bodies and join the UFO. And we remember the cover on the front page of the USA Today newspaper, how these highly educated computer programmers from San Diego put on their new blue Nike uniforms, their Nike shoes, went to Marie Callender's restaurant for their last supper. They came home, they passed the poison around, and 39 highly educated Americans following a man who they believed was the voice of God, the prophet of God on earth that committed suicide. People said, how could it happen? I was speaking in Memphis, Tennessee recently, and interesting article on Memphis about the cult of Elvis. There are people every Sunday that meet in Memphis to worship Elvis Presley, believing that when the Messiah returns at the second coming, the Messiah will be Elvis Presley who will save the world. And Jesus said in the last days, you're going to see the coming of many false Christs and false prophets. As U.S. News and World Report said, we have become a nation of lost souls. It is as Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every man unto his own way and become a nation of lost souls. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And 2 Timothy is easy to find. It's right after 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. Now, how much scripture is inspired? Okay, you might underline that in your Bible. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. Chapter 4. I solemnly charge you, therefore, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And we're seeing this today as never before. People turning from sound doctrine and the truth of God's word for every type of man-made myth and aberration as we've heard here at this conference. You know, the first time most people ever heard the term cult was back in November of 1978. I'll never forget, I was in Manila flying to Singapore that day, and when I boarded the airplane, people were saying, I can't believe it. How could it happen? And I opened the front page of the Manila Times, and there the headlines read, 913 Americans commit mass suicide in Jonestown, Guyana. And you remember this cover of Time magazine that week, telling the story of Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Jim Jones, who had begun as a legitimate Christian minister in Indiana, have moved out to San Francisco. He had gathered a group of a thousand Americans uh, called the People's Temple. He convinced them that he was the voice of God. He was God's prophet on earth. When he told them that they were to move to South America and British Guyana to build a commune called Jonestown, a thousand Americans followed him. 
And then we hear on the last tape, Jim Jones claiming that he was the Messiah, that he was Jesus Christ himself. And he so convinced those educated Americans that he was the voice of God, the prophet of God on earth, that when he told them to drink poison, over 900 Americans took Dixie cups and they dipped into this vat of grape Kool-Aid laced with cyanide poisoning. And they gave the poison to their babies and to their children and they drank it themselves. And that week on the cover of Newsweek magazine, we had the picture of 900 Americans, their bloated bodies lying in the hot tropical jungle of South America, having committed mass suicide following a man who they believed was the voice of God, the prophet of God on earth. And people said, how could it happen? How could you have over 900 educated Americans follow a man and be told to drink poison and they commit mass suicide? It was interesting to me that the commander of the U.S. forces who was responsible for going down to Jonestown and cleaning the camp out and bringing the bodies back for burial, when he returned to Dover Air Force Base with the bodies, he held a press conference, and I'll never forget one of the statements he made that day. He was a Christian. And the commander said the thing which interested him most about Jonestown, he said when they cleaned the camp out, they did not find a single Bible in all of Jonestown. And Jim Jones had so effectively replaced the Bible with his own man-made theology and so convinced those people that he was God's voice, he was God's prophet on earth, that when he told them to drink poison... I mean, folks, if you believe that man is the voice of God, the prophet of God on earth, I mean, who are you to question the voice of God? And they did not find a single Bible in all of Jonestown. That's why Paul warns Timothy... Understand that all scripture has been given by inspiration of God. It is scripture which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? Because in the last days, he says, there's going to come many false prophets. And we're seeing them today as never before. Now you may be saying, well, Ron, if there are coming false prophets in the last days, as Jesus said would happen in Matthew chapter 24. People say... How are we to know the false prophets? If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives us some insight into what the false prophets are going to be like. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Now look at verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
Wow. That's quite a statement. Jesus says there are going to come false prophets. He says the false prophets are going to call him Lord. They're going to preach in his name. They're even going to perform miracles in the name of Jesus. But he says on the day of judgment, I'm going to tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Now people say, wait a minute, Carlson. If they're coming false prophets who are going to call Jesus Lord and preach in his name. Well, how are we to know the false prophets from the real prophets of God? Well, Jesus gives us some clues here beginning in verse 15. He says, first of all, the false prophet is going to come to you dressed in sheep's clothing. Now, it's interesting that Jesus always used sheep as a description of the church, the body of believers. And Jesus tells us that the false prophet is going to come outwardly looking like one of you. He says outwardly they're going to look like Christians. He says they're even going to sound like Christians. They're going to call Jesus Lord and preach in his name. But he says inwardly they will be ravenous wolves seeking to destroy you. Well, you say to me, well, Carlson, if they're going to look like Christians and they're going to sound like Christians, well, how do we know the false from the real? Well, verse 20, Jesus says, so then you will know them by their what? By their fruits. Now, some people say to me, wait a minute. I have Jehovah's Witness neighbors or Mormon friends. If you say you know them by their fruits, well, they must be Christian because they live ethical and moral lives. Well, it's important to understand this afternoon that there are actually two types of fruit spoken of in the Bible. For example, my wife has an aunt, an aunt, however you say it in Texas. Uh, and my wife's aunt, for 40 years, was, was a professor at the University of Chicago. She was an atheist all her life. She just recently died at the age of 94. I witnessed to her for 35 years. She was proud of her atheism. But you know, if you met my wife's aunt, she was one of the nicest, moral, ethical people you'd ever want to meet. A very lovely lady. But I, folks, I want you to know she was at war with God. You see, it's possible for a person to live an ethical and moral life and to be at war with God. See, there are two types of fruit spoken of in the Bible. One is the fruit of your life, but the one spoken of most often throughout Scripture is the fruit of your doctrine, the fruit of your teaching. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5. He says, test the prophets. Are they leading you to the worship of the true and living God or teaching you contrary to what God has revealed? Go to the end, Jude, verse 3. He says, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered unto the saints. Why? Verse 4 says, because there are coming many false prophets. And throughout Scripture, we are continually admonished to test the fruit of what one teaches. Are they leading you to the worship of the true and living God or teaching you contrary to what God has revealed? By the way, before I go on, let me just mention this. Don't stop praying for your unsaved relatives. My wife's aunt, 94 years old, just recently died. She had fought God all of her life. I had witnessed to her for 35 years. She knew it all. In the last two weeks, we were with her. We took care of her in hospice care and in her home. and We kept loving her, sharing with her. Before she took her last breath, 
Last thing I said to her, I said, Jimmy, that was her nickname. I said, Jimmy, we want you to know that we love you. And Jesus loves you and wants to take you to heaven. The last thing she said, and she was sharp in her mind till the end. The last thing she said to us, she said, I know, and I love him too. She took her last breath and died. You know, when Jesus says, if you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you know, sometimes we get discouraged and think, I keep praying for my lost son or daughter, my husband or wife. Don't stop praying. God's still able to do miracles, still able to touch him in the last moment. And I believe we're going to see my wife's aunt in heaven. But you know, there's going to come false prophets, as Jesus said. People often said, say to me, well, what are the cults? What do you mean when you talk about a, a non-Christian cult? And just quickly this afternoon, I want to talk about who the false cults are. Jesus said they were going to come in the last days. And we have today basically four categories of what we refer to as the false Christian cults. First of all, you have what are called the pseudo-Christian cults. Uh, that's really the classical definition of a cult over the last 150 years. Uh, the pseudo-Christian cults are organizations which will claim to be Christian. They will claim to believe the Bible. But instead of building their theology from God's Word... These organizations will claim to have some new revelation or some man-made teaching which they say is greater than the Bible through which they interpret the Bible and they end up denying the central doctrines of historic Orthodox biblical Christianity. In the pseudo-Christian cults, you have such organizations, for example, as the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, uh, known as Jehovah's Witnesses. You have uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, known as Mormonism. You have Mary Baker Eddy, founder of Christian Science. You have Sum Young Moon, we saw in the first slide, founder of the Unification Church, the Moonies. And these are all organizations which will claim to be Christian. They will claim to believe the Bible. But instead of building their teaching and theology from God's Word, they'll claim to have some new revelation or some man-made teaching greater than the Bible, through which they'll interpret the Bible, and they'll end up denying the basic doctrines of historic biblical Christianity. You know, as back in 1820, that Joseph Smith, Jr., founder of Mormonism, says that he received a revelation from an angel of light, that all the Christian churches were wrong, that all the teachings of Christianity were an abomination, and he, Joseph Smith, was chosen to be the voice of God, the prophet of God on earth. Then in 1879, along came a lady named Mary Baker Eddy, founder of Christian Science. She said that she now had a higher, clearer, more perfect revelation than that given 1,900 years before, that she alone had the keys to unlock Scripture. In that same decade, along came a man named Charles Taze Russell, founder of Jehovah's Witnesses. The Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, they claim that they alone are God's voice on earth. They alone are God's organization. Everybody else is wrong. They alone speak for God. Some young moon sitting on a hillside in North Korea, Easter Sunday morning, 1936, says that he received a revelation from an angel of light that all the Christian churches were wrong. He, moon, was chosen to be the voice of God, the prophet of God on earth, and the list goes on and on and on. But what you have are organizations that claim to be Christian, 
claim to believe the Bible, but then claim some new revelation or some man-made teaching greater than the Bible through which they interpret the Bible and end up denying the basic doctrines of biblical Christianity. Now, what is it that deceives most people about the cults? If I were to ask you that question this afternoon, you know, what is it that deceives most people when the cults come knocking at your front door? What is it that deceives most people? Well, if you learn nothing else this afternoon, I just want you to learn this one thing. What is it that deceives most people about the cults? It is simply this. The cults will all use Christian terminology, and they will sound very Christian. But number one, in dealing with the cults, you must understand that the cults have redefined the terminology. For example, how many of you here have ever had a Jehovah's Witness knock at your front door? Just about everyone. You know, you can have a Jehovah's Witness knock at your door and ask them, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And they'll say what? They'll smile and say, absolutely, yes. A lot of Christians go, oh, well, that's what I believe too. Shut the door. But, you know, if you ask them the second question, who is Jesus Christ? They'll smile and tell you that Jesus Christ is the Archangel Michael. That he was the first creation made by Jehovah God. That he came to earth as a man and only a man and died on a stake and rose invisibly as a ghost and came back invisibly as a spirit in 1914 to Brooklyn, New York to have the Watchtower Society. I kid you not. They'll use the term Jesus Christ to make you think they're Christian and then they'll redefine the term to fit their man-made theology. For example, in most major cities across the United States and downtown you'll have Christian science reading rooms uh, founded by Mary Baker Eddy. You know, you walk into a Christian science reading room and ask them, for example, do you believe in the Trinity? And they'll smile and say, of course we believe in the Trinity. But if you ask them what is the Trinity, they will tell you the Trinity is three ethical principles, life, truth, and love. They'll use the Christian words to make you think they're Christian. And then they'll redefine the word to fit their man-made theology. Perhaps the worst of this are the Mormons. The Mormons who call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You know, two Mormon missionaries will ride up on their bicycles this summer, and they'll come to your front door, and they'll have white shirts on and black ties, and they'll have little name tags on, and they'll say, Hello, we're here from the Church of Jesus Christ. We'd like to tell you about Jesus. Boy, that sounds nice, doesn't it? In the 1980s, when my family and I were missionaries in the Philippine Islands, the Mormons opened a new temple in Manila. Now, Mormons built temples like this one in Manila, and you have one here in Dallas. They built temples not as places of worship or teaching. They don't worship in their temples. They don't teach in their temples. But they build their temples in order to do secret rituals and call their endowments or ordinances, secret rituals that... Joseph Smith stole verbatim, word for word, right out of Freemasonry in the Masonic Lodge. In fact, Joseph Smith was a master mason. The Masonic Lodge was above his home in Nauvoo, Illinois. And Joseph Smith, when he started the Mormon temple rituals, he took verbatim, word for word, all the pagan rituals of Freemasonry and put them into the Mormon temple, including the pagan blood oaths that every mason takes when he joins the Masonic Lodge. Now, the first thing every mason does when he joins the Masonic Lodge In the first initiation, every mason is brought before an altar. 
And he bows before an altar, and behind the altar stands a man he calls the worshipful master. And every mason will bow at that altar before a man he calls the worshipful master, and he'll say, I'm lost in darkness, and I need the light of Freemasonry. And then every mason, in order to join the Masonic Lodge, will put his thumb to his throat, and he'll swear a blood oath not to reveal the secrets of masonry, or he'll have his throat cut from ear to ear, his bowels ripped open, given the beasts of filth. Those same pagan blood oaths that every mason takes in order to join the Masonic Lodge, Joseph Smith put them verbatim, word for word, into the Mormon temple, including the secret handshakes of masonry, the secret passwords, the through-the-veil ceremony, and on and on. This is why Mormons are not encouraged to be masons. They don't want them to find out where they got their temple rituals from. Probably 90% of what goes on in the temple here in Dallas, as well as Salt Lake and across the country, is what is called baptisms for the dead, where Mormons believe that they can be baptized for their dead relatives in the Mormon temple and earn their salvation by proxy into the Mormon heaven. Uh, They also practice celestial marriages, where they believe that if they are married in a Mormon temple, that when the husband evolves to godhood, his wife will then become a mother goddess, and she will then be pregnant throughout eternity, populating her own planet in the galaxies, just as mother god populated planet Earth. Well, whenever they open a new temple, as they did a few years ago here in Dallas, they always announce that they're going to have a grand opening for two weeks for the public to go through before they close it off to the public. So I figured that I should probably be there for the two weeks of the grand opening and pass out tracts to everybody who came. (laughs) Well, knowing the Philippines was 95% Roman Catholic at the time, uh, we put together two wonderful tracts. The first tract on the right, uh, I put a picture of the Virgin Mary, and I knew that would get the Catholics' attention. And it asked the question, uh, was the Virgin Mary really a virgin? The Mormon Church says no. Well, it's a great track for a Catholic country. And uh, Catholics get very upset when you start messing around with the Virgin Mary. And you would open it up and read what Mormons teach about God. Uh, Mormons teach that God is a finite man of flesh and bone, married up in heaven to multiple wives. Uh, Mormons teach polytheism. They believe there are millions of gods. And every male Mormon believes he can become a god himself. I showed what they teach about Jesus Christ. Every Mormon believes that Jesus and Satan are brothers that Jesus is simply a man who evolved to become a god. He's simply one god in a pantheon of gods. There are millions of gods. Jesus is one of them. That the blood and cross of Christ is foolishness. You know, you will never see a cross in a Mormon church. You ever notice that? You will never see a cross in a Mormon temple. In fact, Mormons hate the cross and blood of Christ so much that when Mormons take communion, they use water instead of grape juice or wine because they want no representation of the blood. They say it's all foolishness. Well, they were going to open this new temple, and so the first day I stood there between the two driveways, the entrance there, and started passing out tracts to everybody who came. Well, it wasn't long before a couple of missionaries came out and took my tracts, took them back into the temple to read what I was given out, and pretty soon they came out and said, go away, leave us alone. Uh, we don't want you here. And I said, well, I'm going to be here for the next two weeks, passing out tracts to everybody who comes. They said, well, why are you doing this? It's not nice to attack other religions. Why are you attacking us? I said, well, please understand something. I said, I'm not here to attack you. Uh, Please know that I have a great love and compassion for Mormons as people. I said, "I, I care very deeply for you. I said, I just don't want you saying the Filipinos to hell with your pagan temple. 
Well, that didn't go over real well. <clears throat> and they said, well, why are you doing this? It's not nice to attack other religions. Why are you attacking us? I said, well, let's get something straight here. I said, understand that it is not I who's attacking Mormons. But understand it's your prophet, Joseph Smith, in the Mormon church, which says in your sacred book, the Pearl of Great Price, the book Joseph Smith, chapter 2, verse 19, Joseph Smith says, quote, All the Christian churches are wrong. All the teachings of Christianity are an abomination. I said, understand it's the Mormon church today that teaches that the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ and the blood atonement and salvation by faith in Christ, they say that these things are all an abomination. I said, understand it's not I who's attacking Mormons. But folks, understand it's Mormons who have declared war on Jesus Christ. And I said, it's about time that Christians stand up and defend the faith delivered once for all time. And I went back to passing out tracts. Well, pretty soon they sent out these two Mormons from Samoa. <clears throat> these two Samoan Mormons. I don't know if you've ever seen Samoan football players. I mean, these guys were huge. They looked like sumo wrestlers. These two Samoan Mormons came and stood on either side of me. They folded their arms, squashed me between them. And the first guy leans into me and says, listen. He said, if you don't get out of here, we're going to kick your face in. I said, well, that's real loving. I said, have a track. And went back passing out tracks. <laughs> Next guy leans in me. He says, no, you don't understand. He said, if you don't get out of here, we're going to kill you. And they began to threaten me that if I didn't leave, they were going to make sure I didn't come back the next day. Well, shortly after this next picture was taken, I was standing out on the street witnessing the seven Mormon missionaries in front of the temple. And <clears throat> it's 1030 in the morning. And all of a sudden, as I'm witnessing to him, I catch out of the corner of my eye a white Toyota coming down the street about 40 miles an hour, driven by the head of the Mormon security, a man who had been threatening me all morning. And <clears throat> as the head of the Mormon security approached me in the car, he violently swerved the car directly at me and tried to run me down. At the last moment, I caught him out of the corner of my eye, and I jumped back up on the curb, and he ended up hitting one of the Mormon mi missionaries I was witnessing to. Knocked him over on the grass. They had to call an ambulance when that happened. Mormons came running out of the temple yelling and screaming at me. It was 100 degrees that day in Manila, 95% humidity. Their temperatures were getting hotter than that. I'm thinking, Lord, what am I supposed to do? I got two more weeks to pass out tracks. This is just the first morning. <laughs> and as I'm standing out in front of the temple, several hundred Mormon missionaries stand around me yelling and screaming. I'm thinking, Lord, what should I do? And I thought, you know, what would the Apostle Paul do? Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul, he'd probably start preaching the cross. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I determined to do nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, May I never boast, but if I boast, let me boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I started preaching the cross. I said, where's the cross? There's no cross in Mormonism. Without the cross, there's no salvation. The head of the Mormon temple came out. He's an American fellow, about 60 years old. Started yelling and screaming at me to get out of there. I said, sir, where's the cross? There's no cross in Mormonism. Without the cross, there's no salvation. That Mormon leader from America looked at me and he started yelling these words. I'll never forget. He just started screaming. He said, the cross is foolishness. The cross is foolishness. And boy, I'll tell you, when he said those words, the Holy Spirit pricked my heart and I had in my pocket my little New Testament. And I, I pulled it out and I turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I said, sir, here, I said, would you read what God's word says? I said, read it out loud, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And he began to read. For the word of the cross 
is to those who are perishing, what? Foolishness. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing, foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God unto salvation. And I looked at that gentleman with all the love and compassion I had. And I said, sir, the Bible says you're perishing. You're perishing. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. And the Mormon leader turned around and walked back into his pagan temple. But the Mormon missionaries will write up to your front door this summer and they'll knock on the door and they'll go, hello, we're here from the church of Jesus Christ. We'd like to tell you about Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Beware the false prophets who come to you dressed in sheep's clothing, who outwardly look like Christians. Jesus said, They're going to call me Lord. They're going to preach in my name. They're going to say, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And Jesus says, On the day of judgment, I'm going to tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Just because somebody says, I believe in Jesus Christ, folks, doesn't mean they're a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the last days there are going to come many false Christs. Well, just quickly, let me just mention the other three categories before we get back to this first category. Second category we talk about today are what are called the Oriental cults. Those that have their basis in Oriental or Eastern philosophy, specifically Hinduism and Buddhism. You have such things as the Hare Krishna movement, Krishna consciousness. You have the divine light mission of Maharaji Ji. Uh, you have Transcendental Meditation of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, their university up in Fairfield, Iowa. You have Yoga and Vedanta and many other cults. We see it promoted in, our, in the movies, uh, movies on Buddhism, the accepting of Dalai Lama today as uh, people thinking he's just wonderful, people involved in all forms of yoga. I mean, we even have, as uh, Dr. Reagan talked about, the emergent church and uh, Mike Gendron talking about the emergent church. Uh, churches practicing yoga today. They say, I'm doing Christian yoga. Talk about an oxymoron. When I was at the University of California, I majored in Indian philosophy, specializing in Vedanta and yoga philosophy. So there are some of the leading Hindu gurus at the time in the 1970s that were here in America. Yoga, folks, is a Sanskrit word, which means yoke or union with God. The whole purpose of yoga is not exercise. Yoga is a 2,000-year-old religious practice that is designed for very specific spiritual purposes. And the asanas, the isometric-looking exercises that you do, the pranayamas, the breathing exercises, they are all designed in Sanskrit. They call it sittavrita mahuti. It means the elimination of the thought process, the tearing down of the mind and personality through the isometric-looking exercise, through the breathing exercises, to tear down the mind and personality and open you up to the gods of Hinduism. Yoga means to be yoked or you achieve union with the Hindu gods. And the whole purpose why you do it is to open you up to the gods of India, which are demonic to the core. And we got naive churches today going, let's bring yoga into the church. You see it in all types of meditation today. Yoga meditation, Zen meditation. People saying we have to go within to tap in to our own divine light within. You know, it's very interesting. The Bible talks a lot about meditation. 
But understand, biblical meditation is the exact opposite of Eastern meditation. You study yoga meditation, you study transcendental meditation, Zen meditation, all forms of oriental meditation are always an inward subjective descent, being told to go within to tap into your own divine light, as Oprah Winfrey often says. The problem is what you're tapping into is what Jeremiah 17 says, the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. If you're seeking peace, peace is not by going within. Read the Bible. Scripture over and over talks about meditation. Psalm 119 says that we are to daily meditate upon the word of God. It's very interesting, Webster, who did the dictionary, when he defined the word meditation, he defined it based upon a biblical understanding. And he says several things about meditation in the dictionary. He says, first of all, true meditation is to study. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He also uses the synonym. He says, True meditation is to ruminate. Do you know what rumination is? Rumination is what cows do with their cud. You know, cows will eat grass in the morning, they'll swallow it. About 10 o'clock in the morning, they'll take a coffee break and they'll bring it back up and they'll chew upon their cud, they'll ruminate upon their cud, they'll gain nourishment from it, they'll swallow it. About lunch, they'll take a break and bring it back up and they'll ruminate upon their cud, chew upon it. You see, when the Bible says that we are to daily meditate upon the Word of God, it means we are to daily ruminate upon the Word of God. We're to chew upon the Word of God, gain our nourishment from the Word of God, as Mike Gendron says, and apply it to our life. I often like to say to Christians, have you ruminated today? Have you ruminated? Third category we talk about are the New Age cults. It's interesting that the New Age cults uh, teach that we have all evolved physically as animals in the first age through evolution. And they say that we're now staying on the brink of a new age, what they call the age of Aquarius. And they say in this new age, men and women will continue their evolution, but you will now evolve mentally and spiritually to achieve your own divine nature. Such organizations as Scientology of L. Ron Hubbard, Dianetics, uh, religious mind science cults, you have the Unitarian Universalists, uh, Freemasonry and the Masonic Lodge, and many other New Age cults. One of the biggest promoters of the New Age movement is Oprah Winfrey. Last summer, on XM Radio, she had over a million listeners on her program with Eckhart Toller of the New Earth, promoting that each man is divine, that man is God in the making, that we just need to go within ourselves and tap into our own divine light. And Oprah Winfrey, probably the biggest promoter of the New Age philosophy, that man can ultimately be God himself. We see it in Scientology, what Time Magazine calls the cult of greed. Scientology that John Travolta, Tom Cruise, uh, Christy Alley, many other Hollywood stars are heavily involved with Scientology. Uh, it was started by this man, L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard, who was a famous science fiction writer back in the 1930s and 40s. In fact, if you go to Barnes & Noble, you can still buy his science fiction books. In 1950, he wrote the book Dianetics as a science fiction book, and people took him seriously. So he decided to start his own church based upon his science fiction book called The Church of Scientology. And in that, he says the reason why people suffer in life is because you have lost your Thetan or your godhood through thousands of reincarnations. 
So he says if you pay them tens of thousands of dollars, they will help program you back through your past reincarnations to get your godhood. And he says when you realize that you are God, worship yourself and you'll be at peace. And he'll do, help you do that for several hundred thousand dollars. That's why time calls it the cult of greed. It's a huge moneymaker, but it's why so many of the Hollywood stars love Scientology. Because I can become God myself. I can worship myself. I am God. And we see, sadly, that this is the same lie, folks. Satan hasn't changed. He just dresses it up in new terms. It's the same lie that God Adam and Eve cast out of the Garden of Eden. Man wanting to be God himself. Genesis chapter 3, I eat of the fruit. You can become God yourself, like God. And sadly, the same lie that God Adam and Eve cast out of the Garden of Eden. It's sadly going to keep men like Tom Cruise and John Travolta out of heaven. Man wanting to be God himself. The oldest lie recorded in God's word. But many people have gone into a fourth category called the occult or the spiritistic cults. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Concerning the last days, he says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons. Not only are we told in the last days there are going to come false prophets and false Christ, but it says in the last days... Many will follow after the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. And we're seeing this today as never before. Everything from Satanism to Wicca and witchcraft, all forms of fortune-telling, astrology, tarot cards, palmistry, people going to spiritists, mediums, clairvoyance. You see it from the checkout counters of our grocery stores on a regular basis. I mean, you can't even buy a loaf of bread or a quart of milk now. And at your checkout counters, you have these great intellectual magazines like the National Enquirer and the Star, you know, your giant horoscope t- telling you the truth. Or television, which promotes heavily the world of the occult, popular programs like the medium. We see it in games children play. You can go to toy stores, and one of the most popular fantasy role-playing games is Dungeons & Dragons. D&D, which is a fantasy role-playing game that is designed to allow a teenager to live out in a fantasy world all of the immoral and perverted desires his mind can conjure up by calling upon the aid of occultic characters, sorcerers, wizards, witches, demons, demagogues. In order to play the game, you have a player's handbook. You also need a dungeon master's guidebook. This is typical, and this is being sold in toy stores, folks. At Columbine, Klebold and his friend who murdered those 13 were heavily involved in playing D&D, Dungeons & Dragons. As Dr. Timothy Rackey, professor at the University of Colorado, has documented, after playing it, teenagers no longer distinguish between fantasy and reality. They begin to live it out in the real world. And he's reported over 200 cases directly related to D&D of murder and suicide by teenagers who begin to live out the fantasy world in the real world playing these fantasy role-playing games. You see it with things like Harry Potter, the Bible says in the last days, many are going to follow after the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. It's fascinating to me. You can't read the Bible in school. That's bad, folks. You can't pray in school. That's bad. But, boy, you can read Harry Potter. You can learn about the occult. I mean, if you've ever read the seven books of Harry Potter or seen the movies, the very first thing that happens, I mean, J.K. Rowling, the author, knew exactly what she was doing. 
The first thing that happens to Harry Potter, he goes to the zoo. He's in the reptile cages there. And while he's there at the zoo in the reptile area, the, a serpent, a snake, begins to speak to Harry Potter and begins to communicate to Harry Potter that he has chosen to have supernatural gifts. Now, folks, it seems to me that if we have learned anything from history, you know, we would have learned a long time ago, it's a very dangerous thing to listen to talking snakes. <laughs> but this is how Harry Potter begins. And then he's sent off to the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Sorcery, where he learns all the tools of the occult, practicing sorcery, witchcraft, casting spells, mixing potions. And this is presented as something good and positive. And children all across the world are reading this in our public schools here in America. And teachers say, isn't it wonderful our kids are reading? But you can't read the Bible. That's bad. But boy, you can study the occult. You can learn about sorcery and wizardry and witchcraft. Boy, that's something good and positive. I was speaking recently at a seminar and a mother said to me, hey, don't get all shook up about this. She said, it's no big deal. She says, it's just fantasy. The kids enjoy it. She says, when we grew up, we had things like the Wizard of Oz and the Wicked Witch of the East. It's just fun. I said, but ma'am, think about it. When you grew up, you could pray in school. That was something good. You could read the Bible in school. That was something good. You knew the wicked witch of the East was evil. I said, do you realize what's happened in just one generation in America? That what used to be good, the reading of Bible and prayer in schools, is now being told to children, you can't do that, that's bad. And what used to be bad in school is now being told to our children, that's something good and positive that you can use. If you want to see what God says about our generation, turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, God tells us what has happened to our generation. Isaiah 5, beginning with verse 20. God says, Isaiah 5, 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And he goes on. And God says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Who call light darkness and darkness light. This is exactly what has happened in America in one generation. What used to be good is now called evil and what is evil is now called to be good. And in one generation we have completely turned our value system upside down. And then we can't figure out why our young people are so confused. The Bible says in the last days before Christ returns, you're going to see many follow after the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. Folks, it's happening worldwide. But in the brief few minutes we have left, I want to talk about this first category, the pseudo-Christian cults. Organizations that claim to be Christian, claim to believe the Bible, but then add some new revelation or man-made teaching. People often say, well, if someone claims to have a new revelation from God, as do the Mormons or... Jehovah's Witnesses or whoever, how do we know whether that is from God or not? I mean, we even have churches in America where people stand up in church and say, I have a vision, I have a prophecy, I have a revelation from God. Folks, have you ever wondered how you know whether it's from God or not? I mean, personally, I become very concerned when I see this happen in church when you realize virtually every cult began with somebody claiming to have a vision or a revelation from God. How do you know whether it's from God or not? Well, it's very easy to test. You see, God has already told us in Malachi 3.6 that he is immutable, he does not change. In Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, God tells us that he does not lie, he does not change, he is consistent in truth. 
Therefore, if someone should come along and claim to have a new revelation from God, as do the Mormons or whoever, you must always test that so-called new revelation by God's oldest revelation, the Bible. And if you test that new revelation or vision or prophecy or what have you by God's word, and it's consistent and in harmony with God's word, then there's no problem. But if you test that revelation or vision or what have you by God's word, and you find that it contradicts or is inconsistent at any point, you must always throw out the younger revelation, hold fast to God's oldest revelation, for God has told us he does not change. He's consistent in truth. That is why scripture must be your authority. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture has been given by inspiration of God. It doesn't say all revelations are inspired by God. It doesn't say all visions are inspired by God. It says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof, for teaching, for training in righteousness. Now, why is that so important? If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll see why. Why is it so important to test all things by God's word? In 2 Corinthians, it's easy to find. Why is that? Right after 1 Corinthians. And we got a sharp group here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 and 4. Paul says, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion which is in Jesus Christ. Now, in your Bible, you might underline the word minds. Just underline the word minds there. Understand that Paul here is writing to Christians. Okay, He's writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, I'm afraid for you Christians, lest your minds be led astray from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. You say, well, how could the Christian's mind be led astray? Look at verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached. You might underline that in your Bible. Paul says there is another Jesus, a counterfeit. Or if you receive a different spirit. You might underline that in your Bible. Paul says there is a different spirit, different from the Holy Spirit. Or if you receive a different gospel. You might underline that. Paul says there's another gospel, a counterfeit. I'm afraid lest you accept these. Now go down to verse 13. Verse 13 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. There's that identification again. False apostles who disguise themselves to look like Christians. Verse 14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. Folks, what sits on top of the Mormon temple here in Dallas? What sits on top of the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City? Moroni, the angel of light. You ever wonder who that angel of light is sitting on top of the Mormon temple here in Dallas? The angel of light who told Joseph Smith that all the Christian churches were wrong, all the teachings of Christianity were an abomination, and he could become a god himself? You ever wonder who that angel of light is on top of the Mormon temple in Dallas? Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. What is Paul saying here? Paul's saying, I'm afraid for you Christians. 
lest your minds be led astray, because there's going to come another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit, counterfeits, brought to you by false apostles disguising themselves to look like Christians. Now, people say to me, wait a minute, Carlson, but I thought there was only one Jesus Christ. Now, what you need to understand as we conclude today is that there is literally a smorgasbord of Jesus Christ being served up to the public in the last days. And who is the Jesus of the cults? The Jehovah's Witnesses, they say that Jesus is Michael the Archangel, the first creation made by Jehovah God who came to earth as a man, died on a stake, and rose invisibly as a ghost. The Mormons, they say, well, we believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, my goodness, we got him in the name of our church. We're the church of Jesus Christ. All Mormons teach and believe that Jesus is the brother of Satan, that he's simply a man who evolved to become a god. Mormons deny the virgin birth by the Holy Spirit, teach he was born through physical incest. They teach that the blood and cross of Christ is foolishness. You will never see a cross in a Mormon church. And as I said, they dislike the cross and blood so much that when they take communion, they use water instead of grape juice or wine because they want no representation of the blood. They say it's all foolishness. Mary Baker, and Mary Baker Eddy in Christian Science, she said that Jesus was a divine idea, a nice idea. Some young moon, founder of the Unification Church, he says that Jesus is a man who failed. And he, some young moon, is now the second coming of Jesus Christ to complete the unfinished task of salvation. The Baha'i, they say that Jesus is one of nine great world manifestations. They say it doesn't matter what religion you believe, all religions are basically the same. We talked about that last night. The Unitarian Universalists, they say that Jesus was a good man, his followers mistakenly deified. The Freemasons in the Masonic Lodge, they say that Jesus was nothing more than a good moral teacher. According to Masons, he's no different from Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or Zoroaster. The Spiritists, they say that Jesus was an advanced medium in the sixth sphere of the astrological projection. Wherever that is. Unity in Lee Summit, Missouri, they say that Jesus was a man who perfected the divine idea. Rosicrucians, they say that Jesus is a manifestation of cosmic consciousness. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in Fairfield, Iowa at the Maharishi University, they say that Jesus was an enlightened guru who never suffered or died for anybody. And the list goes on and on and on. But what you need to understand as we conclude today, folks, is that the Jesus of the cults is not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus said in the last days there are going to come many false Christs. We've got to buy the hundreds. And the question still before us is simply this. What think ye of Jesus Christ? Who is he? Who is the real Jesus Christ? We've got hundreds of Jesus Christ being offered to the public. Who's the real one? I close with two verses. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. Who is the real Jesus Christ? 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now is already in the world. John says, test the prophets and the spirits. Do they confess that Jesus has come in the flesh? If they deny that, they are of Antichrist. Well, folks, there are many cults that believe their particular Jesus was in the flesh. But you see, John had already recorded for us in his gospel who this unique one was who was coming in the flesh. Turn back with me to John's gospel, chapter 1. And John starts his gospel with what we call in logic a syllogism, so there'd be no mistake as to who he was speaking about. In John chapter 1, he begins with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? And the Word was God. Look at verse 14. And the Word became what? Became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Now, John starts his gospel with this logical syllogism, so there'd be no mistake as to who he was speaking about. Verse 1, he says, the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. Now, if the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, who became flesh? And John starts his gospel, so there'd be no mistake. God took on Human flesh, God incarnate. You ever have chili con carne? What does con carne mean? With me, incarnate. I don't know why I brought that up, but. <laughs> when we talk about the incarnation, when John says the word took on human flesh, God incarnate, God took on human flesh. And when he writes his epistle, 1 John 4, he says, Test the prophets. Do they confess that Jesus Christ is the eternal God come in human flesh? If they deny that, they are of Antichrist. And there's one distinguishing mark of all the non-Christian cults. They all deny that Jesus Christ is God come in human flesh. The Mormons deny it. John says they are of Antichrist. The Jehovah's Witnesses deny it. John says they are of Antichrist. The Moslems deny it. John says they are of Antichrist. The Masons and the Shriners deny it. John says they are of Antichrist. He says, test the prophets and the spirits. Do they confess that Jesus Christ is the eternal God come in human flesh? If they deny that, they are of Antichrist. And why is that so important? As we conclude, because it is because of who Jesus Christ is. That he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Understand why this is so important to understand as we close. Every fall, the Jews celebrate Yom Kippur. What is Yom Kippur? It's the Day of Atonement. And every year, the Jews would bring a lamb to the temple to sacrifice for the sins of the people. The next year, they bring another lamb to sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the next year, they bring another lamb on Yom Kippur to sacrifice for the sins of the people. Why? Because they were finite sacrifices.
But if you read Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, it tells us that when Christ died on the cross, he was by nature the eternal Lamb of God. He was the infinite sacrifice who shed his blood once for all time for the remission of sins, Hebrews 10.10 says. Can I take two minutes and I'll close? I mentioned the flight down to New Zealand and several have asked about the Jewish couple from last night and and, uh, they got off the plane, asked if I could give them more information and we corresponded for two years. Uh, I don't know if they ever came to Christ, uh, but we sent them information. We corresponded for two years, had a wonderful correspondence and, and then all of a sudden I never heard from them again. I don't know where they died or what happened, but we pray that God planted those seeds. But while I was down in New Zealand and I close with this illustration. When I was down in New Zealand, you know, New Zealand's probably the best kept secret in the world. New Zealand is the size of California. It looks like California. It's on the same latitude in the Southern Hemisphere. They got the deserts, the beaches, the snow-capped mountains, the fertile plains, the agriculture. It's a gorgeous country, but they only got 4 million people. Can you imagine California with just 4 million people? But they got 50 million sheep. They raise sheep like we raise cattle. You go into a drive-in restaurant, you get lamb stew, lamb chops, lamb pie, everything's lamb. Well, they, had me, they took me on a big sheep ranch. And the sheep ranchers were telling me that oftentimes in a large flock of sheep, when the mother ewes are giving birth to the lambs, that oftentimes the mother ewe will give birth to a stillborn, a dead lamb. And somewhere else in the flock, a mother ewe will die in giving birth to a live lamb. So the sheep ranchers will take the orphan lamb that lost its mother. They'll bring it to the mother who lost her baby in order to have that orphan lamb nurse and feed and suckle. But that mother can smell the fleece, the coat of that lamb, that that is not her baby. And she will always kick it away and will not allow it to nurse and feed. And the sheep ranchers in New Zealand discovered that if they take that dead stillborn lamb, and they cut it open and take the blood of that dead lamb and they smear it as a covering over the coat of that orphan lamb. That when they bring that orphan lamb to the mother, she smells the blood that covers that orphan, that that is her baby. And she will allow it to nurse and feed and suckle. When the sheep ranchers told me that, I thought, what a great illustration of our relationship with God. God who is holy cannot look on man's sin. But God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son as the eternal lamb of God, the infinite sacrifice once for all time. So that we could come by faith and receive the gift of forgiveness, the gift of cleansing. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says he covers us with his shed blood. So when God looks down on you and me, folks, he no longer sees our sin. But he now sees the blood of the eternal lamb that covers us. And he allows us to come back into a personal relationship with him for which we were created. Folks, that's good news tonight. That's good news. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord, you are so good to us. We praise your holy name. God, it overwhelms us that we could come into your presence. 
And it awes us, Lord, that we can call you Father. Lord, you hear our prayers. May we never take that for granted. May we never take it for granted how wonderful the good news of the gospel is. As we see a world that's lost and dying, heading out into a Christless eternity lost. And all the time we received a revelation that there is a way, there is a door. That we can know you and have life. Lord, in these last days, as we see the signs of the times, as you prophesied all around us, being fulfilled in our lifetime, we look forward to your soon return. But God, give us a burden to reach out to our friends and neighbors and family around us, Lord, that in these last days, that in love and compassion, we would share with them the tremendous good news of the gift paid for by the eternal Lamb of God, Jesus Christ that we can find forgiveness before a holy God and know you and have life. To you be the honor and the glory and the praise. God, thank you for Lamb and Lion Ministries. Thank you for Dr. David Reagan. God, I want to pray a special anointing upon him. I pray anointing, Lord, upon this ministry that you will bless it and honor it for your honor and glory, Lord. We give you the honor and praise, and thank you for this time we could be together this weekend. In Jesus' precious name, amen.